0: Take a network break. We got a whole bunch of stories today, so hold tight to your virtual donors. We careen through this week's tech news. We got uh, cloud-delivered security services from Juniper and Cato, new heavy metal from Fortinet, prognostications on the campus switch markets, and financial news, and more. This episode of Network Break is sponsored by Datadog. They're the SaaS monitoring and security platform. They enable full-stack observability for developers, IT ops, security, and business teams in the cloud age. You can learn more about Datadog by signing up for a free two-week trial. That's at datadoghq.com slash network break, datadoghq.com slash network break. And while you're there, you can get yourself a free t-shirt. And today on the Tech Bytes podcast, we're talking about how to get end-to-end observability into cloud-delivered security, including cloud access security brokers and SASE. Our sponsor for that show is Appnetta. Last but not least, if you want more news and commentary, check out our Human Infrastructure newsletter. Every week, we pick interesting and useful tech blogs, IT news, and more. Plus, there's commentary and some lulls. You can sign up at packetpushers.net slash newsletter and also see every back issue there. And... We never sell or trade your email so that's safe with us all right let's dive into the news juniper has announced a new firewall as a service offering it's called juniper secure edge it's built on software from juniper's srx hardware firewalls and it's all managed from juniper's security director cloud so all your firewall policies for both juniper hardware and for the new cloud service can be managed from one location
1: so this follows the trend that we often talk about here where things are moving out from the core of the network to the edge of the network and, you know, in decades gone by, we used to take all the traffic and flow it into somewhere where we could run it through a firewall, and then we'd have a cluster of security products there, threat detection, intrusion detection, and so forth. And what we've realized is that if you expand the network out, move the security functions to the edge, and then send the traffic to some SaaS service hosted in a, somebody else's data centers, you can call them the cloud then the whole idea of security changes because you inherently when something's virtualized in the cloud uh, and you put a software platform on it to administer it, then you're able to apply a whole bunch of services to it. So we've talked about this plenty. Most of the time it's called called SASE or CASB. Juniper here is applying its brand here and saying, what we want to do is offer a firewall as a service. Now it's not Just a firewall? It's an application firewall, right, Drew?
0: Yeah, it's whatever you get with SRX. So, uh, you know, the Layer 7 application ID and inspection. uh, It's also got a secure web gateway. um, And it also integrates with uh, cloud-based ID providers. So Azure AD and Okta, among others. Yes, so it's not just your typical uh, stateful inspection firewall.
1: Yeah, that's right. So it's not, when they say firewall, I think it sort of does a disservice to themselves. It's actually much more than firewalling, but maybe that's to pitch it to customers who aren't, ready to embrace, you know, analysts made up words that try to describe a product, a new product category because they want to put it on their resume or get a bonus for defining a category. Which well, I
0: speaking of analyst made up words, this is uh, driving Juniper mm-hmm. towards SASE, which is this Gartner category, Secure Access mm-hmm. Service Edge, where, which puts a variety of security functions into a cloud-based offering uh, for the reason you mentioned that you don't have to backhaul everything to, you know, a stack of appliances. Yep. Uh, you put it in the cloud. And which then is good,
1: right? Yeah. And keep in mind that Juniper's got an established brand around SRX, and mm-hmm. it's got quite a solid threat detection team on board. So it's all in-house. I don't think they're outsourcing too much of this. Nope. And you get you know, intrusion prevention, anti-malware, you get a web proxy, you get a filtering and a threat protection. Cisco spent several billion dollars buying this a few years ago. They bought a bunch of companies to build out their web proxy email scanning and all that type of stuff. And now here we've got Juniper just able to build it up from scratch. It's interesting to sort of consider over time, to my mind, how something that cost billions years ago is now table stakes and apparently doesn't cost billions to build.
0: No, not at all. I don't think it costs mm. Juniper billions. And I th- it's also interesting that they're leveraging the pieces they have to eventually build out what they're going to call a sassy service in-house uh, mm. using in-house components as opposed to going out to the market and acquire somebody. Mm. I think it's smart the and- way Juniper is approaching it. I do. I think
1: they're, you know, it, it, Juniper seems totally revitalized at the moment in their ability to... So in this case, Juniper does have an advantage, say, over Cisco. It doesn't have multiple security business units. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, Cisco decided that when it acquired the web proxy, it would sell that as an individual product. When it acquired the email scanning, it would sell that as a separate product. When it acquired tried a threat detection and firewall company, it would sell that as a separate product on top of its ASA firewalls. You know, the... Right. And, and so on, right? And so if Cisco wants to, now B as a market, to my mind at least, is uh, the convergence or the aggregation of all these disaggregated products. So where before you used to buy an IPS or you used to buy a malware scanning or you used to buy a proxy, this is now just all glommed into a single product. If you're a company that's got spent billions acquiring businesses and you've got all these business units and executives at the top all hitting their numbers and all that sort of stuff, Turning around and saying, well, the market's changed. I want you five business units to turn into one. Well, <laughs> you know, an enterprise IT, it took Cisco 15 years to amalgamate its enterprise IT business under one leader. And when it did, its enterprise IT changed. We finally saw ratification, you know, focus on products, uh, many products being end of life, like the 6500 series, you know, the old campus series was done, new initiatives. And I think soon, not not this year, probably in two or three years, which is soon for Cisco, you'll know when Cisco's starting to see that CASB is biting into their revenues and they're starting to look out of touch. This is normal, by the way. Cisco's a big company, big successful company. You wouldn't want to go and compress these business units together and forego that revenue. So, But when it does happen, then you'll know that CASB is mature. And this is, we were talking, we've got another article come down a bit about a company called Cato Networks and their similar sort of product offering. I think the reason that most of these products still exist in the SD-WAN and the SASE and the CASB space is literally because the branded vendors like Juniper and Cisco haven't converged themselves.
0: Does that make sense? Yes, that's the thing. So, Gartner really set the fox among the chickens when it came out with this sassy category. One, because whenever Gartner creates a category, you know, a magic quadrant's going to follow, and you know that every tech vendor in the world wants to be on that magic quadrant. So, every tech vendor that has anything even related to sassy, which is firewalls, SD-WAN, et cetera, is bending over backwards to sort of shape themselves into that magical square. Um, mm. So Juniper is doing it bit by bit. If you look at Cisco's marketing around SASE, they say they have building blocks, which I think is, you know, startlingly honest for Cisco. They don't have SASE. They have the building blocks. And right now it's up to you to cobble them together. I anticipate that, yes, down the road, Cisco will find a way to integrate them. They'll stumble through it, I think, like they did with SD-WAN when they tried to roll out their yeah. own SD-WAN yeah. and then decided, hell, well, that we got to buy somebody else. Uh, that may be what they do. Uh, but we'll see. Um, and then, yes, talking about Cato down the road, they are also moving into the SASE category, as are folks like Palo, Fortinet, et cetera. It's, it's touching everybody.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's a bit like, you know, watching Ford motor car Ford motor company, get into electric cars. You know, there was plenty of space for the emergence of 20 companies making electric cars. And then finally the big established vendors said, well, okay, we have to do electric cars. And then they got into it. Right. right. And so this is the same thing. Those established brands don't want to change. They've got investment, they've got market share that they want to, to some extent they want to see where the market's going to go. They don't want to jump in too early. I don't think the CASB market is early. I think you know we're a good 10 years into this SD-WAN slash CASB market space. But Juniper seems well-positioned. They've said, right, like, we've got SRX, let's put some threat detection, let's get some malware. They've made some bolt-on acquisitions. They're doing it all in-house. And Juniper is a pretty solid brand these days. Um, and it also differentiates them very strongly from Arista, I think. Yes. Arista is still very much locked into the traditional model of let's shift switches. And we'll put some SDN on them enough to say we've got some SDN, but really it's up to you to use it because we think most of our customers are writing their own SDN platforms um, and we'll see how it goes. But I think Juniper's got a good, this seems, seems you know, on a paper review to be something worth worth considering.
0: Yes. Uh, So sticking with cloud-delivered security, as we teased, Cato Networks has announced it's now offering a cloud access security broker, or CASB. As you mentioned, Uh, it's a new feature as part of its cloud-delivered security service. So CASB essentially is, uh, as it says, a broker in between your users and uh, SaaS and other on-prem apps. um, And you can get visibility into what apps your end users are using. And then also this CASB allows you to put some enforcement around it. So can I do I want this user to be able to access this app? And they can also do things like, do I want this user to be able to use these particular features of this web application? So you get mm. some very fine grained uh, enforcement on what users can and can't do.
1: Yeah. Kato was one of the first companies in the SD-WAN with the managed backbone thing. They have pops all over the place. Yeah. So for them to add security inspection and and security features to it's fairly intuitive. Feels late compared to the rest of the market to me, but Um, we've seen plenty of other companies go in here, but up until now they've been partnering with third parties, like send the traffic off to Zscaler or, you know, one of the other CASB specific companies. But what's happening in more recent time is we've seen companies like Cloudflare say, just send it in, you know, we'll give you the client as well. So they're going to do the edge part of it. And I think companies like Cato have sort of been forced into the CASB because their competitors or the companies that they used to partner with who were, Um, covering the part that they didn't want to do, they didn't want to do the security part, have realized that the companies like Zscaler are
0: now just competitors. And so you, and I think also it's just not that hard, not as hard as it was, right? No, certainly not. I mean, in Cato's... model, they had already built out their points of presence. So they had the infrastructure to start layering services on. And they've already done that. They already offer firewall as a service, secure web gateway, IPS, anti-malware as part of that cloud delivered security offering. So they're just bringing CASB in to kind of round out the portfolio. And frankly, if you're going by the official Gartner SASE definition, CASB is a required piece. So mm. I feel like Kato was sort of a little early in tagging itself as a SASE provider because it didn't have CASB. Now that it does, it can, mm. you know, ride that that SASE horse to whatever, to glory.
1: Yeah. SD-WAN with an application file will distribute it across all of it, you know, somewhere in in a cloud somewhere and you're buying it as a SaaS service. That's CASB to me. Yep. Then you can argue about features, you know, do you want identity management, third party? Do you want to use SAML? You know how deep do you want the ips or the you know the inspection to go the logging and there's some you know different vendors are at different levels of maturity in that space um and that's you know as we talked about with the juniper piece up front
0: that's that's the gap yeah yeah so everybody's rushing to fill it Uh, Moving on, but sticking with security, Fortinet, they've announced a new hardware model for their next-gen firewall. This is the 3000F. It kind of sits in the mid-range of Fortinet's portfolio. It offers 31 gigabits per second throughput with all the security services turned on, or 400 gigabits per second throughput if you're just using the next-gen firewall mode. (laughs) Oh, I love me some hardware. (laughs) What's interesting is that as, as a 400 gigabit per second firewall...
1: That's you know base firewall or simple you know uh, packet inspection firewall. That's a really high speed firewall still by anybody's standards. Yeah. And one of the things that pains to highlight here is just how they're they're sort of indicating that they're like five times faster across the board than competitors for speed. Things like connections per second, concurrent sessions per second, they're still outperforming. But you get the idea, right? So uh-huh. Uh-huh. the advantage here is that Fortinet's got their own ASIC. They've been working on it for decades now, and that is why their firewalls are so much more performant. So if you're actually just looking for high-performance firewalls at a moderate cost, this is a product you should probably take a look at.
0: Yeah, so in addition to the firewalling, it's also got IPsec VPN, it's got SD-WAN, it's got SSL inspection, uh, threat detection, and all that. And frankly, one of the things Fortinet does is when it uh, publishes its throughput speeds, it gives you... The base throughput speed, just firewall. And then what happens when you turn on all the security services, it tells you that number too. And most other vendors don't because they want that yeah. big 400 gig number at the top. They're not hiding from it. Like
1: you they can't. Right. Like one of the challenges I've had with other people's firewalls is, well, what's the IPsec VPN performance? And you contact them and they go like, well, we don't know. It depends. <laughs> and you say, well, it depends on what? And they say, well, we don't know what it depends on. We just don't know. Right. And it's like they've either never tested it or they're uncomfortable with the number that they're going to tell you and they don't want you to say it in public perhaps. But, yeah, they're just straight up here. They're saying, like, it's 400 gigabits per second, it's 110 gigabits per second with IPsec, 31 gigabits per second with threat detection turned on, and so on and so on, right? So And you can see see that impact uh,
0: that all these security services will have on throughput once you start turning them on when you go from 400 gig to 31 gig. So I appreciate them being straightforward about it.
1: Mm. No doubt there are uh, products that they're comparing against are probably the worst of their competitors, but that's as you would expect. <laughs> yes. um, the thing, I, the reason that high-scale firewalls still still matter is that that single point of failure, HA, large firewall cluster remains common practice. And I suspect that customers are still asking for, why can my firewall not do 10 gigabits per second of threat inspection? and this is the sort of product that you want. So if you've got a 10 gig internet connection and you wanna do wide speed threat detection, this is probably a product that you might wanna consider looking at. Yeah.
0: My assumption is that over time, as folks begin to adopt more cloud delivered security services, the pressure is going to increase on the traditional firewall vendors to fight for that smaller piece of the pie. And so Fortigate, yeah. uh, Fortinet is sticking with its custom ASIC strategy as a way to differentiate in this market.
1: What a sir, I agree. I, I don't disagree with you there.
0: Very good. A uh, quick break to tell you about our sponsor today, Datadog. Datadog's unified platform with 500 plus vendor backed integrations lets you correlate metrics, traces, logs, and security signals across your applications, infrastructure, and third party services in a single pane of glass. With network performance monitoring included in that platform, Datadog gives you full visibility into every network component that makes up your on-prem, your cloud, and your hybrid environments with little to no overhead. By monitoring the performance of connections among your host services, VPCs, and other elements, you can quickly determine what your when your network is the root cause of any issue. And as exclusive offer for Network Break listeners, you can sign up for a free two-week Datadog trial at datadoghq.com slash networkbreak. That's datadoghq.com slash networkbreak. And while you're there, you can get a free Datadog t-shirt. We thank Datadog for being a sponsor. Uh, moving on to the news, Cisco's teasing the launch of a private 5G offering. It's currently light on details, but Cisco's private 5G is going to be offered as a cloud managed service. So that means the equipment, software and services are going to be delivered for a monthly payment and it'll all be managed in the cloud.
1: Um, this is the most sane description of a private 5G I've ever seen, Drew. Really? <laughs> Did you? I don't suppose it like it says the private 5G use cases quickly rearrange factory floors fair deal. That's a good one. You mm-hmm, know, mm-hmm. Uh, Warehouse logistics, improve supply chain efficiency, uh, mining oil and gas, reliable vehicle control over large areas, enhance worker safety. These are viable use cases for private 5G. This is the most sane piece of marketing around 5G I've seen in, in five years, I think.
0: This this might Perhaps. be a first. This might be a first yeah. for marketing. Well done.
1: Yeah. It's not often Cisco marketing sort of gets out of its own way. Yeah, uh, It does have a habit of sort of going through some sort of process that turns it into something not very useful, but this is this is quite well done. So they're focusing here on, I guess what I would see is what we used to think of as Wi-Fi and they're saying 5G is an alternative to that. So where before we might've put up Wi-Fi base stations and created cells and all that, this is a shift to using just private 5G for long range wire radio. What's not clear here is where Cisco ends and where partners start. Yes. So if you're going to put up a 5G, you have to put up towers, you have to manage spectrum. Only America, I believe, has currently allocated uh, open spectrum for 5G at this point, and there is a lot of work going on. Other governments around the world are saying that they will start allocating spectrum so that private 5G can happen, but there's a whole lot of, you know, that spectrum gets shared and so forth, but um, it's interesting. I, I'm still unclear, Drew, as to whether private 5G gets enough scale It's a complex set of technologies that require a lot of administration. The radio spectrum will be potentially congested, or you have to buy licenses. Like if you put up a microwave connection, you have to go and ask for permission. So I think, you know, I'm not, there's definitely a need for this, but is it something that's sustainable and long term? Don't know.
0: I think this is going to be one of those kind of high-touch services that customers who really need it, need it, and will pay for it kind of deals. I don't anticipate, you know, private 5G taking over, say, inside a hotel or in a campus network. This is for very specialized use cases, and so Cisco and others will charge that specialized price.
1: Yeah, and and I think there's, you know, the brand advantage here. There's a lot of companies that want to deal with a brand that they know. Right. Uh, and they want to, you know, partner with or maybe go with a vendor that they know. Cisco does have a strong... Um, you know, financial situation has strong brand recognition amongst certain executives, but Cisco is traditionally has sold its telco type assets directly to telcos. You don't normally hear about it, so this sort of breaking cover to say, yes, we have telco assets, you know, the optical networking and the, the old 3G, 4G uh gear that they had that they used to sell in the back end to that sort of stuff, but there's still plenty more 5G that you have to do, like, you might buy pieces of the elements of the 5G solution from Cisco, but where's the antennas, where's the mounting, where's the spectrum analysis and stuff.
0: Right. It's going to be one of those high touch customer engagements because you're going to have to come have people come out to your site uh, and do site surveys and all that partly for the spectrum and also because of where things physically need to be located, that kind of thing. Uh, so again, mm. I think it's going to be high touch, high expense. But Cisco, just like we talked about uh, the last couple of weeks with Cisco sort of integrating SCADA and Ethernet, typical Ethernet and saying, use the same device, use the same people. They're they're talking about doing the same thing here. Run this private 5G alongside whatever YLAN infrastructure you've already got in place. Use the same folks you have to manage it using our yeah. cloud service, et cetera. So it's, it's kind of the similar, you know, instead of having these silos of OT and IT, we can help you integrate them and, and save you management and operations overhead.
1: If I was an enterprise IT person and I had been using Cisco's Wi-Fi, that idea of saying add five G to it, that resonates. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I'm not sure it's perfectly legitimate because five G is radically different <laughs> at, at every layer of the stack to yes. Wi-Fi. But okay, let's see how that works out. I, I'm, you know, like most enterprise IT, they don't like to commit to these things. They don't have the resources to do a deep strategic analysis of these types of things and decide whether they should be into a thing or how to do a thing. And so this ability to say, well, I've got a solution that does 5g and Wi Fi. Oh, I've got all the things now.
0: Yep. Yeah. We should also note that AWS announced a preview of its own private 5G service on a very similar model. Uh, They package it all up and deliver it for you and operate it from the cloud. Uh, AWS announced this back in November 2021. So Cisco also wanted to get out in front of customers who may be interested. Uh, And Cisco says it's going to release more details at the end of February at Mobile World Congress. (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> yes, I do get a sense we'll see a lot more private five G announcements now that AWS has broken cover. Yes, everybody.
0: <laughs> yes, yes. The usual suspects. Everybody I will have will.
1: to put something on the table, whether they're ready or not. Yep. Yes.
0: All right, moving on. Uh, Citrix—they're being acquired by two private equity firms in a sixteen point five billion dollar deal. The acquisition is going to take Citrix off the private, uh, off the public market, and back to a private company.
1: Yeah, uh, we Citrix has really struggled from a company that was in a top position in the enterprise IT market with the VDI.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, it's pretty much consistently failed to make its way to grow. Part of it, so selling out for sixteen point five billion sounds like a pretty good
0: deal. It's had pr- lots of struggles. Um, I, but- I think about all of the markets that Citrix was a prime contender in. The hypervisor market, they kind of lost out to ESX. Uh, the SD app deliver, application delivery controllers. When that transition to SD WAN happened, they tried to play and they failed. Um, they also had GoToMeeting, like a remote conferencing and video delivery platform. They sold that back in 2016. They've just kind of, you know, not been able to get out of that core VDI space. Yeah, just really
1: stumbled from from <laughs> from thing to thing, and never really made themselves you know, whatever it was. And you know, it, they were either too, I think most of the time they actually accurately picked the trend, but they picked it too early. Mm-hmm. Like they came out with hypervisors before, just before it was widely adopted and, and then missed the transition and ESX got it. When they acquired uh, the Riverbed application, sorry, not the Riverbed, but they acquired an application delivery company to have load balances, but never really gave that business the legs to get out. They never let it sell itself. They kept wanting to tie it to their VDI solutions and integrate it with this and mix it, you know, and then they acquired um, an SD-WAN company. Didn't they have a couple of goes at that?
0: They, I think they rolled out their own SD-WAN based on the NetScaler ADC product. They tried mm. to sort of transition it to uh, SD-WAN. Mm. And they, they did make a go of it, but unlike Silver Peak, they were, Silver Peak essentially said we don't do ADC or load balancing anymore or WAN op anymore. We're just, we're yeah. an SD-WAN company and Citrix trying to, Hold, tried to hold on to both and couldn't straddle both markets.
1: Yeah, that was the unique thing about Silver Peak was that they were a WAN acceleration company and they literally pivoted on a dime and said, no, 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 we're a dusty we're a WAN yep. company yep. almost and then turned into a SAS company very quickly, of course, um, and really did walk away from the WAN acceleration market with r- rapid speed and be fully committed to where they were going. They did. Whereas Citrix required to do all of it. They and, did,
0: yeah. Citrix tried to ride uh, those two horses and yeah. Yeah.
1: Well, Riverbed also sold recently, that yeah. um, sort of thing. Um, so it does show you that sometimes being fully committed to a new path, you know, turn and burn, I think, is the word that some people I've said, I've read think. So uh, it's being acquired by uh, equity partners, a company called Vista Equity and Evergreen Coast Capital, um, which are affiliates of Elliott, who've also taken its stake as well. Mm-hmm. And apparently it's going to be merged with TIBCO. Odd?
0: Feel odd to you? yeah. so Tibco, they provide data analytics and business intelligence. You know, if you've got a big uh, lump of data sitting somewhere, Tibco is supposed to help you uh, extract value from it. so i'm I, I'm not one hundred percent sure how Cisco I mean, Citrix snaps in there, but I guess it has something to do with vdi and and Citrusig's, uh secure workspaces. But, yeah, I, I don't quite see it
1: hmm. I th- I'm not sure what the synergy is there. Maybe that's this idea that, analytics is actually what customers are buying. And then once you're landed with analytics, you can turn around and take, you know, land and expand off an analytics product, I, I, I guess.
0: I guess. Yeah. I don't, yeah, I'm not hundred percent sure. Um, but, you know, mm. the, presumably the folks who have munged this together see a vision. So, uh, you know, well, See what Maybe happens. Maybe it's some sort of
1: vertical solution. Right? Yeah. When you buy a Tipco, you get a Citrix things infrastructure for free. But like Oracle built up its own internal hardware business to be able to sell Oracle products bundled on Oracle hardware.
0: Perhaps. The press release does say that the two combined companies have something like, you know, 98% of the Fortune 500 bundled in and 400,000 existing customers. So there's also, I think, a long tail play here where some of these systems are just kind of entrenched into big companies and you can just, can, you know, uh, run that subscription licensing till mm. the end of time kind of thing.
1: So maybe it's a rent extraction move. Could be. Now, none of the coverage I read, there wasn't a whole lot of coverage. I think most people sort of didn't notice, to be fair, but... um Yeah. Sad to see Citrix Citrix go down. Yep.
0: Well, they're still here, but, you know, now they're private and and we'll see what happens. I wonder if they'll also maybe try to cut some units and shine them up and take them out again. Uh, That's some kind Mm. of exit. We'll see. Uh, moving on, the Deloro group, they predict that over the next five years, worldwide spending on campus switches is going to top more than $100 billion. Uh, So with work from home taking root over the past couple of years, I think analysts had expected campus switch sales to crater or take a beating and not really recover. But Deloro is saying that they're forecasting and based on folks they've been talking to that they see uh, $20 billion uh, being spent a year or more uh, over the next five years, which may be a sign. I wonder if this is a sign maybe that enterprises are betting on users returning to the office or compelling users to return to the office over the next couple of years, because I, otherwise I can't quite fathom why people would be spending a lot on campus switching.
1: Well, I, think, I think there's a couple of trends here. I think the biggest one is that Cisco is making buku bucks out of selling campus to companies.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, Cisco courses define a new category of campus called software-defined campus, and they're going in and saying, if you do a software-defined campus, we can sell you edge security and very much an emphasis on that you can do micro segmentation and security inspection in the campus, in the network. Mm -hmm. And that has generated significant revenues for Cisco and shareholders have noticed uh, this. And I think what Delora is picking up on is once that market starts to move and where Cisco is able to move a market, customers are now out saying, well, maybe we should talk about refreshing their campus. That would be one Mm
0: -hmm.
1: use case. Does that make sense? That does make sense, Yeah. Cisco is basically driving that market. And so there's a lot of activity once Cisco sales reps are knocking up on doors saying you should upgrade your campus so it's secure and safe. There's a story that resonates in 2022. Uh Um, And the second part is that actually a lot of campus networks are well overdue for a refresh. You know, it's not uncommon to talk to people and find 10, 20, 30-year-old hardware inside of a, uh, a campus network. And everybody sort of knows like, yeah, we should, but... You know, we can wait a bit longer, (laughs) do you know Uh, what I mean? Right, right. Mm.
0: Yeah, Delore also mentions that they think um, as folks begin to conclude their adoptions of Wi-Fi 6 and we're seeing Wi-Fi 7 on the horizon that there may be, that may spur these sort of multi-gigabit campus access switches in the 2.5 and 5 gig speeds.
1: Yeah, I find that, no, (laughs) I find that very hard to accept. (laughs) The idea that people are out buying 2.5, 5 and 10 gig switches for campus to the desktop uh, in the backbone, yeah, I could I could see that. Maybe they're upgrading their backbones from one gig backbones, you know, multi mm-hmm. you know multi channel, load balance, you know, four by one gigs type stuff, and upgrading them to ten gig. Um, and certainly, if Wi Fi six and Wi Fi gets out, is that a campus upgrade? And does that drive extra sales of campus switches? But yes, it does. But doesn't drive large volumes, maybe.
0: Right, um, that's what I was thinking. I think
1: the thing that, I, and from my point of view, we've talked to a lot of companies about software-defined perimeter and zero-trust network access. So this idea that a lot, you know, as people start to move out of the office and work remotely on a on a continuous basis, not five days a week, but three days a week. All of a sudden, what you do for that remote access becomes also your in-office access, right? Mm -hmm. You used to always have a campus network that you're in the office, you plug into the Ethernet and your security policy is defined, et cetera, et cetera. But if you're out of the office 50% of the time, say, most of your office workers are out of the office 50% of the time, well, that becomes the new normal. And whatever your software-defined perimeter solution becomes, that probably affects your campus substantially. Now that's not to say fax machines and printers and medical appliances and industrial networking. And that is another factor is there are new campus networks coming into play that didn't exist before. Factories and so forth, right? Mm -hmm. So that private 5G that we talked about needs a campus network to go with it. So maybe maybe there's too many factors here we'd have to read the reports perhaps.
0: Yes, if we could pay Oro all that money for the report, we would read it. That's a lot of money, to be <laughs> fair. Yeah. In any case, we have the link to uh, describing the report if you want to go see details. Um, we're going to wrap up with one more story. Uh, the open source MariaDB is going to go public via a special purpose acquisition company, or SPAC, uh, Angel Pond Holdings Corporation. MariaDB says the acquisition values the company at $672 million. Uh, Greg, you dug up the story. I had not heard of MariaDB.
1: So MariaDB is a fork of MySQL. Um, Most people would have heard of the MySQL database. Mm -hmm. Uh, It was, uh, for all intents and purposes, acquired by Oracle uh, uh, when it acquired Sun Microsystems. And shortly after that acquisition, there was a dispute about who was leading that project and how it was being run. And a number of Oracle people started to stick their oar in. And then Oracle took it to a commercial status as well. And there was a fork to MariaDB, and MariaDB is the open uh, and now MariaDB has now commercialized and gone to set it up as a company. Now, a SPAC, Special Purpose Acquisition Company, that is where a group of people with too much money that they got nothing to do with, they give it to a person who's usually a well-known face, who sets up a company and then lists it on the stock exchange. And then he runs around and looks for someone to buy with the money that the investors have given him. Yep. And if the investors then like the business that this person has unearthed, they then give them the money, commit to it, and then they get the shares in the company. So SPAC is a very quick way to list on the stock exchange without having to go and do a a book building and and hire banks and so forth and so on. Uh, And so basically, and then this will now, the SPAC will then own it. The SPAC is listed on the stock exchange. Uh, the original investors own the bulk of the shares and they can then choose whether to start selling them to create liquidity in the market or whether they hold on to them and so forth and so on. So this is actually a good use case of a SPAC. The MariaDB doesn't have to wander around creating hype and bubble around its business and all that. It can just go on. But basically making a commercial version of MariaDB is good for everybody, I think. We need an alternative to MySQL and this is great. And uh, for a lot of companies, getting away from Oracle is a thing. Uh, A lot of companies feel um, stuck, if you like, or held captive by Oracle and Oracle pricing. So it'll be interesting to see how it goes.
0: Yeah, my take on SPACs is that I I understand they allow companies to go public faster than a traditional IPO. Uh, There's also less regulatory scrutiny and fewer disclosure requirements. So to me, that's a little bit of a red flag because you never know what's hiding uh, inside. But depending on your risk tolerance, a a SPAC may be attractive to you. Yeah.
1: well, in theory, now they they're a publicly listed company. Once they make the transition to be listed on the, I think it's Nasdaq or the NYSE. Usually, it depends on the SPAC.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, well, then they'll have to release public, and so that information will go public for eventually it will come retail out, yes. investors. Yes, but yes. for the initial investors or the you know the, the the commercial investors, if you like, they are taking it on under a different circumstance, and that's what the SPAC does. Yeah. <laughs>
0: All right, well, links in the show notes if you want to find out more. Stay tuned for our sponsored Tech Bytes, conversation with AppNeta on getting visibility into cloud-delivered security services. That's coming right up. Today on the Tech Bytes podcast, we're talking about how to get end-to-end observability into cloud-delivered security, including cloud-access security brokers and SASE. Our sponsor is AppNeta and our guests are Alec Pinkham from Product Marketing and Dean Jackson, Product Management at AppNeta. Folks, welcome to the podcast. So let's dive right in. Why do I need observability if I'm taking advantage of a SASE security platform?
2: Well, I guess SASE uh, really removes the need for you to, to manage a, a much larger chunk of your network than, than you previously would. So SASE brings the cloud towards your end users. Uh, and that's great uh, when it works. So you know the, the SASE evolution from CASB is uh, giving you all the security uh, and it's actually simplifying your connection model. So it's it's great while it works. Uh, the The problem is when it doesn't. Uh, you now are extending the the cloud envelope way back towards your users, and that that uh, invisibility zone is is much bigger. And so the the finger pointing mm. that happens between teams uh, when there's a problem uh, is exacerbated. So it makes it more important than ever to to really measure the the uh, digital experience your end users are having and keeping an eye on that all the time and being able to, I think it's, to isolate. I think
1: it's really interesting in sassy that we're entering into much more complicated technologies, right? There's load balancing, we're over internet and we need ways to get visibility into what's happening that we've never needed before. So one thing I find about digital experience monitoring is that we could sort of do without it five years ago. But now we're using SASE, we're doing threat detection and threat analysis. We're doing SD-WAN and load balancing over different network types. You know, people are using cable or DSL or, you know, DIA circuits or 5G. Uh, You've got users attached to those and you don't like, you don't know when we had routers, we had certainty. We knew that this was connected to that and it went over a guaranteed circuit and it, it might have really bad performance, but it, Wasn't do you know what?
2: Totally, yeah, that's exactly right. The you know it used to be the those those uh, parts of the access network you mentioned, the uh, you know the the access network, the um, the the VPN infrastructure, hmm. the MPLS circuits, the, the site to site VPN. That was all in your team's domain, and you had direct visibility into it. Now, as you you move into to SASE, you're relieved of the need to manage all of that. Um, But now you don't have the visibility. So when there is a problem, it's either going to be the application or the SASE network or your problem getting to the point of presence. Uh, And so you need the visibility from where users are to at least see, can I get to the, the point of presence? Is there a problem there? Is there a problem in the home network? Is yeah. there a problem on the user's machine? How do I distinguish when I don't have that visibility any longer inside my network? I think,
1: And I think the second part that we're seeing is that for customers who are deploying into SASE environments, they're also now starting to get into multifunction function environments, right? So you might have a third party CASB doing the security analysis or the threat detection or the threat response. So a Cloudflare or an Xscaler, for example. And, or you might have some sort of third firewall. You want to use a third-party firewall to comply with security policy. And now all of a sudden, even though most SD-WAN vendors provide some visibility, they don't provide visibility like this. Their tooling doesn't work so well when it suddenly starts handling, well, how do I start to monitor traffic that's not my fault, like not in my SD-WAN? What happens when I've got two SD-WANs and a public cloud, I've got three public clouds in my infrastructure, and then I've got two data centers. At very, like, it's that multi-function, multi like multi-purpose type. The real infrastructures that we actually have.
3: Yeah, and what we've seen is also interesting is a lot of those only get uh, you know small intermittent parts of the network uh, for visibility. So you know the SD WAN has visibility into their section, right? The Casby has interde- you know visibility into their section, but no one has the end-to-end picture. Uh, as and, and this is what I call the kind of the universe model of the network, right? Everything went to the center and now it's expanding back out again and eventually uh, some of it will kind of standardize back now into the cloud instead of the data center or headquarters. But the more and more you have to piece all of that together, the harder it is for IT to actually understand where issues are stemming from and and where they can actually fix the problem versus where they have to punt it over to another team or another vendor to figure out what the problem was.
0: So how are you able to instrument all of these elements? Because if we're talking about, you know, an end user at home, there's... There's their own computer, there's the Wi-Fi, there's the ISP connection, there's the pop where they're hitting the SASE and then whatever they need to get to beyond that. So there's a lot of components that you guys have Chili to try to measure. Yeah, Exactly right. Uh, and and the, the problem is with
2: SASE networks, uh, once you're inside the the SASE network, you, you really can't get a lot of visibility. You right. can get visibility to the end application. So you need to know that you can access the application through your sassy service. You should also be keeping an eye on it Direct, so that you can tell the difference between a problem with the the, uh, the SASE proxy and the application itself. And then you need to keep a visibility on your end users and wherever they're at, whether they're in your offices or at home, you need to be keeping an eye on their end experience. Can I access the application? Can I access the points of presence? And do I have visibility into the underlay? to the points of presence so that i know there's uh, you know the problem is with the isp do i have a visibility into the the home network so that i can tell that it's actually an end user problem in this case it's something with their network uh, and everyone else can can relax uh, it's really a question of trying to isolate the, the the problem to one of those domains
0: so it sounds like what you're saying then what i need are different um components to get that visibility so probably some kind of element on the uh client device but also you know the ability to measure isps um the internet that kind of thing is that is that what you're saying
2: AppNeta can give you the, the visibility to the the point of presence from your end users so you can actually get the, the, the visibility into the home domain uh, the home network the even the host uh the isp connection through to the point of presence and any transit carriers in between we can give you visibility to to all of that uh, we can also give you uh, visibility directly through to the the end application as well. And that's how you can tease apart, is it a problem with the application, one of these other domains, or uh, the SASE.
0: And SASE itself, I think, is a unique issue for observability because it's essentially a cloud black box where my traffic uh, is terminated, probably decrypted, runs through a bunch of security functions and shows up on the other side. And I don't really know what happened in the middle. And so... That's an yeah. issue if I'm trying to figure out where my problem is.
2: Yeah, that's the the, the blessing and and the curse of SaaS. The you know the the positive side of the pitch is that you're relieved of the need to manage all of that equipment and all of that network. Um, but it does become a, a black box to to some extent. So you've got to find ways to keep the the, the service operator the SASE operator honest
1: Uh
2: uh, in terms of of knowing that all the other pieces are actually working. It's something with your service.
1: That's important because what we know from, you know, the last decade of outsourcing is that outsourcing is usually a failure. And when you you outsource your SD-WAN to a managed service provider, it's not reasonable to expect that it will not be a failure. You should basically, in my view at least, assume that whoever's managing your SD-WAN um, is going to fail at it in some way. You have to sort of take that as an operational stance that they're going to mess it up, yes. and the onus is on you as a customer to say you're messing it up because they, as an operator, aren't going to come to you and say like, Hey, we messed up. You know, when was you know when was the last time your technology vendor came out and knocked on the door and said, You know, you know that uh, you know that <laughs> WAN router you bought it really didn't work well. You know, the the faults are off the roof and the bugs are out of control, and you know we're going to give you a new one. When was the last time that happened?
2: Absolutely, yeah. And this is not just a an application we're talking about here with with secure edge networks. It's it's literally a network, and and you know you're handing off not just your corporate security, but your corporate networking. Once inside the sassy. uh you're 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 handing that off off to them. So all of those things that you hold yourself accountable for uh, managing the availability, the redundancy, uh, the adequate provisioning of of bandwidth in in those networks. You know, if, if you're not holding this, the SASE service to the to the same standards, then you know, what are you doing if you're outsourcing this? So you do need to to keep 24-7 measurement on whether they're doing their job.
0: So what can AppNeta then tell me about how my SASI is performing? Am I basically just getting how long it took for you know a flow to get through you know point A of the SASE or the in uh, the inbound of the Sassy to the outbound, or or is there anything else I can get?
2: The point of digital experience monitoring is not so much to see inside that black box. you can't. It's to make sure that your digital experience end to end is is monitored twenty four seven and that you're actually looking at the the end user's experience accessing the mm. application, and you're keeping an eye on that at all times. When there is problems, you can uh, differentiate between direct access and the proxied access, so you can you can be monitoring both of those things, mm-hmm. and that can give you a signal that the the, uh, the is having a problem. Uh, and you've also got uh, deep visibility into the connection between the home, through the home network, out through the ISP, and to the point of presence. Uh, and so, having visibility into that underlay, you can detect where problems are in any one of those domains mm. and you can rule out the SASE. Uh,
1: but- I think it's also, it's also I think what you're alluding to there is the fact that DEM is an edge technology. And the closer you get to the edge, the more of a real, I, I, use the, I hope you can hear the inverted commas in there, but if you've got an agent at the user's laptop, right? And it's sending in signaling data about how the application is responding because you're tapping into the operating system. Um, you're actually mapping the real experience, whereas if you're tapping into the SD WAN, you can only say, well, once the packets reach the SD WAN box or the SASE edge, then I could see the performance. And then, but when it leaves the SD WAN slash SASE edge, I can't tell you what happened much after that. Although I can monitor the packet flows and I can do packet captures, but I can't, I can't map the user experience that last mile as accurate as I could be if I was using Dem. So, and Dem also means that I can be monitoring where there is no SASE edge. So w- where people are working, coffee shops are on VPN, remote VPN. So we're seeing a lot of SASE solutions have VPNs built into them. And now I need to know, are those people, you know, hi, I'm calling. Where are you? You're in Starbucks. Yes. That's why your application is working badly, you know, sort of thing.
2: Yeah, that's exactly right. Then you know, SASE gives you the ability to uh, give the, the same authentication flow and the same network management no matter whether your users are at home or in the office, so you know that's that's an improvement. It's a simplification. There's a lot of benefits to that. But as you say, you're you're now on a home network. You're now in a coffee shop. The the network is always changing. Mm. The the way you get to the SASE network is just knowing what it is is half the battle. Sometimes where is this person? Uh, you know what what machine are they running on? What sort of network have they got? How are they getting to the point of presence? Which point of presence are they? Connecting to just knowing all of that is is a lot, and, and then you add uh, you know VDI and browser isolation into the mix. You now just you know, you've got a, just a bit uh, a video, an audio bit stream to to the end user. Still yeah. have to travel over something, and you need visibility into that something uh, to figure out where the problems are. And very often they are in the home network yeah. or the coffee shop network.
1: This is the trend I'm seeing for 2022. Is this operations focus or what I call day two? The last couple of decades in networking has been about day zero, you know, speeds and feeds, ports, mm. interfaces, cables, you know, power. And I mean, those are all important and remain important, but then day one, like how fast can you deploy this? How easily can you roll it out? And that was where SD-WAN was. And then we realized actually that wasn't too hard either. As soon as we solved, you know, just ship it straight from factory to site and then, you know, or in inverted commas, basically, you know, send it to site, self-configuration, zero trust, you know, setup and all that sort of stuff, zero touch setup. And now we like went, well, that's it. Now we solved that problem. But this is the next step, which is solving this operational issue of letting the help desk do its own troubleshooting. It doesn't need to understand SASSY and routing protocols and circuits. When it's troubleshooting, it just you know the the person on the help desk needs to be able to click. Ah, okay. So. Dean is ringing me and he's saying that he's got a problem. If I click on this button here, that's integrated into my help desk console. Oh, I can see that he's getting 30% packet loss. Dean, are yep. you, where are you at the moment that might be causing the network to be a problem? I'm connected to the 5G in my car outside my daughter's <laughs> sports ball. You know, uh, Well, very, very
2: often, uh, you know, we can tell you that as well. So, you know, once you know who it is, uh, you can, you can basically look them up and you can find that Oh, they're on wireless. I mean, that's a, that's a start. That that could be a problem. Oh, look, it's uh, it's it looks like it's a Starbucks based on the SSID. So yeah, we can tell they're in a in a cafe. So you know, you know where to start looking at this point.
3: I was going to say my my favorite anecdote is when we're talking to uh, random customers that are talking about problems that they've isolated. Oftentimes, the users are not going to admit where they are. Right? They're they're going to say they had a problem and assume that IT has the fix. But we've had people <coughs> who take the afternoon from the roof deck, and turns out the wireless signal is not that great up there. And so they uh, are in, immediately kind of. Uh, Uh, vindicated when IT can say, well, you know, your signal quality dropped at 12. Where'd you go? And start (laughs) uh, figuring out exactly what happened.
1: But think about the cost savings there for the help desk that you can instantly iterate in without having somebody on the help desk who's probably getting you know close to minimum wage, knowing how to ask smart questions about troubleshooting performance issues. And it's not like, I mean, Windows is bad enough. I mean, Microsoft Windows barely works at the best of times. You know, adding in any other any other issues is really an issue. That's where I think, and that's where this product really works. Now, I know that AppNetta has become part of Broadcom recently. They announced that Broadcom's got an acquisition, and that's going through. How's that going to change over time? What's Broadcom? Are we allowed to talk about what Broadcom's going to be doing, or how what you're going to bring to the mix there?
2: Well, we're we're still AppNetta at, at this point, so you know we haven't closed yet, but that's uh, that's happening very soon, and we're really excited uh, about you know the ability to. To bring that outside-in visibility into into the the Broadcom stable, which obviously includes uh, Symantec and and their mm. SASE service, uh, so we can start to to give you some of the inside the black box visibility, along with that outside-in um, perspective as well. So, you know, that's going to be for for customers that are using the the Broadcom uh, Secure Edge. That's going to bring a a huge amount of of visibility and integration. It's going to simplify that picture a lot. So, yeah, we're really excited about that.
0: All right, well, that does bring us to the end of time for this episode of Tech Bytes. Um, Where can folks go if they want to get more information about how to keep their SASE provider honest? Yeah, that would be appneta.com slash packet pushers. All right, appnetta.com slash packetpushers. Uh, Thank you, Alec and Dean, for joining us. Thanks to Appnetta for being a sponsor, and thanks to you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, we've got many more fine, free technical podcasts and our community blog. It's all at packetpushers.net. You can follow us on Twitter at packetpushers. Find us on LinkedIn and rate us on Apple Podcasts. And last but not least, remember that, too much networking would never be enough.